Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. I'm joined on this episode by Ann Zeiser. Ann is a critically acclaimed social impact producer and media strategist. Her background as a broadcast journalist, marketing executive, and social advocate has uniquely positioned her as the architect of successful media-driven productions and social impact campaigns. She has stewarded iconic documentary, drama, lifestyle, and children's series and specials for PBS. She's also produced news for CBS, managed consumer brands for national marketing firms, and has served in government and political campaigns. Integrating all of these perspectives, Anne went on to found Azure Media, which develops high-profile projects for broadcast and digital platforms that fuel social impact campaigns in communities, schools, and capitals. Most recently, Anne has served as executive producer for Muraling Austin, a three-part PBS documentary series that explores the art and artists behind the vibrant public murals to be found in Austin, Texas. Here's the series trailer. I would like to paint the town. I would like to see murals everywhere. (laughs) Murals are brightening Austin, celebrating people, honoring histories, transforming spaces. Art is not just about making pleasing visuals, it's about making people think. Dive into Austin's vibrant murals and meet the artists and organizers behind them on Muraling Austin. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And now on to my conversation with Ann Zeiser. Hello, Ann Zeiser. Welcome to Making Media Now. Well, hello. It's so wonderful to be here, Michael. You know, and you're you're a longtime valued friend of Filmmakers Collaborative, and uh, I've been wanting to chat with you for a while uh, for a number of reasons, based on some of the more recent work that you've been part of, but really just kind of based on the totality of your career and the career path that you've taken, and how you've got multiple oars and some very interesting waters over over the years. So I want to start out with this question. You and I are at a barbecue, we're at a cocktail party, we're at some type of an event, and you introduce yourself to me and I say, hey, tell me what you do. How do you respond to that? Luckily, I'm not a computer programmer, so I don't have to lie, Um, (laughs) you know, because everybody wants help with their their computer and their website. Um, I think that if I were to give the 32nd answer, I would say that I produce uh, media for mission oriented organizations um, with the eye towards um, making a difference, uh, getting around social issues that really matter. So that puts me a lot in the documentary realm. for a real definition of what I think I have been doing for the last, say, 15 years, I call myself an impact producer. And that has specific meetings for different people. But I mm-hmm. certainly can define what it means for me. 
Sure. And I, I want to get into the uh, particulars of impact producing and how that aligns with the um, kind of the objectives of particular documentary films or series, particularly on like the likes of PBS. Tell me about your background a bit. Uh, how did you come to take the career path that you ended up taking? And was it a byproduct of interests that you had since you were a kid? Um, well, my my path wasn't planned. So I um have been interested in a little bit of everything my whole life. So um, like a lot of people, I am a generalist and I ended up getting a scholarship to study science and math. So I am a huge science geek and thought that I was going to end up in the sciences. And so I began um, in college studying biochemistry. Um, then I was like, you know, I'm not really sure. I kind of got pinholed into being a pre-med. I wasn't super happy with that. Took a couple years off and I traveled around the South Pacific, bumming around, hitchhiking through New Zealand and um, finding myself, I guess you would say. And I came back and I got a job in the state house in uh, Boston, Massachusetts, working on constituent work and really was very interested in government and journalism. Um, and I do come from a family of educators and lawyers and ended up going back to school and getting my degree in government. Um, and largely because it was the easiest degree to finish in two years. <laughs> <laughs> Not because I necessarily wanted to serve in government, but I was very much interested in justice um, and social issues. Uh, so I ended up sort of segueing that into kind of media. And I began to think mm -hmm. about how I wanted to work in news. And so I got a, an internship at what was then the CBS affiliate in Boston mm -hmm. in the news department. And within a couple of weeks, I was promoted to a production assistant there and worked in news for about three and a half years there, traveling around from department to department. I started um, in the political unit with um, Joe Day, who is uh, a real um, stalwart political reporter in, mm -hmm. in Boston. I worked in the consumer unit. I worked in news, you name it. I worked at the assignment desk. Um, I did a whole bunch of events from the marathon to political conventions. In news, they throw you into everything. And I really, yeah. really got the journalism bug. I did some producing for um, in the International News Department at CBS and did some research for 60 Minutes and really loved it. But they, my hours were 3.30 in the afternoon till 11.30 at night because I worked like the 6 o'clock news and the 11 o'clock news. And so after about three, four years of doing that, I thought, hmm, I wonder if there's kind of a more stable life. And I ended up going into the average. Well, I, I spent a year working on a public affairs project for the cleanup of Boston Harbor. Okay. So I worked for a essentially a PR agency based in Philly mm -hmm. and um, subcontracted with an engineering firm. And we worked on the cleanup of Boston Harbor. And I really was excited by the idea of making a difference. And then I spent 12 years working at ad agencies. Um, in what capacity? Um, I, I began working in the PR side of things. So kind of that flipping the, the, the other side of the coin from being a journalist to a PR person. People who have worked in news and journalism 
make pretty good PR people because they know how to pitch a story. They know right. what's newsworthy. They know what isn't. So I worked largely in the social responsibility area um, and working on clients where they were trying to create programs that also made a difference. So they weren't mm-hmm. just selling the product, but were also working on their image or working on social justice. And I worked on everything from Marriott Hotels, Resorts and Suites to tech to Brigham's ice cream, Elon frozen yogurt, Tyco International, and any number of types of companies for 12 years. And after doing that for a long time, and I rose through the ranks and I did I began in PR and ended up expanding into really strategic planning. So And you were at a couple of the, at least at the time, a couple of the biggest uh, ad agencies in the area with Mullen and Arnold. That's right. Both of those agencies were were really in their heyday. I went to Mullen in 91 when it was really very much a rising star. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I learned so much in the agency world because in that environment, essentially things are thrown at you very, very quickly. You have to get up to speed very quickly on an industry, on a client, on the personalities, on the environmental landscape on the product. Um, and so it's it's really baptism by fire. And you're right. just going 100 miles an hour. And um, and it was great. I became a very, very well-rounded marketer yep. because of those 12 years. But I did. Did you ever find yourself in those in, in those years? Was there any internal, maybe philosophical struggle around being someone who you know, wanted to apply your your skills and your intelligence for the greater good, but your client is selling something. And sometimes that can cause some sort of cognitive dissonance between, you know, wanting to do good for the world, but doing it for a for-profit enterprise. And I believe that both can be can happen simultaneously, but I but I do often hear about people having that struggle around, you know, the the term is am I selling out? Uh, Michael, you nailed it. I mean, I literally woke up for the last couple of years doing that, feeling like I was just selling soap. And I was lucky enough that I had clients that um, would allow me to work on the social justice side Mm -hmm. as well as promoting the product. So I would come up with ideas because I had very good relationships with the clients and I would sort of add on, I'd say, what about also doing this? And many of them said yes, but it wasn't enough. And um, I, I had the struggle and it's what led me to my career at PBS. So the transition out um, of the agency world was about getting back to dedicating myself to making a difference full time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that led you to your years at WGBH or as is now referred to GBH. Yes. Um, so when I when I was preparing to leave, I spent some time thinking about where I wanted what kind of place I wanted to work. And I kept landing on sort of the intersection of media and mission. And since I wasn't leaving Boston at the time, there was no other place but WGBH. And I forced them to hire me. I mean, I literally forced them 
to hire me. What, what did that involve? <laughs> well, it involved um, cold calling. There was a job at Nova, which is not the job that I, I got, but it was yeah. the only job I knew about and talking to people and um, we're waiting until somebody finally picked up the phone. And as it turned out, the job at Nova, which I would have loved because I'm such a science geek, was being withdrawn. But somebody that I spoke to said, you know, they are posting a position for the head of the internal marketing department. I don't know if it's been posted yet. And I talked to people that I knew there, not too many, but it were people who were kind enough to talk to me. And I figured out who that person would be reporting to. And I called her and she ended up becoming my boss. Jean when Hopkins. You, was when you entered, uh, I'm sorry. Jean Hopkins, the VP of communications. I know that name most definitely. When you entered the, the realm of, of GBH and uh, educational media, uh, PBS, um, coming from the agency world, coming from uh, um, advertising and marketing background, did you did you ever encounter any um, resistance? Is probably too strong a word, but any feeling among the producers, the creators of the programming, having a reluctance to sort of sully themselves with concerns around things like marketing. Yes, indeed. So my job there began as the director of national promotion, which essentially meant that I was running an in-house marketing department. Mm -hmm. And my clients were the executive producers of Nova, American Experience, Masterpiece Theater, Mystery, This Old House, all the children's programs from essentially the Mount Rushmore of public television. Right. I don't know if that number is still true, but at least 33 percent of the national programming, at, at least at the time, was coming out of WGBH and a, and a whole slew of specials and special projects as well. Right. And um, I remember my one of my interviews with the head of national production. Um, I, I remember. I interviewed with, I think it was either 13 or 17 people, and many of them were executive producers. The first, I would say, and I'm not exaggerating here, I would say the first two years of my job there was about, and, and this does, is not going to come across the way I want it to, but that's okay. Educating the executive producers. Sure. Yeah. It was much more about and some were much further along than others in understanding. But I had conversations with people who said cable is not our competition. And that we live in public television in a separate realm from right. anybody else in television. Mm -hmm. And yet I would say, you know, biography you know, could be licking the chops of American experience. And I don't know if HGTV could be licking, you know, could be cleaning the clock on this old house. I mean, they they didn't some of them didn't see it, right. but they began to see it. And so it was really about understanding the importance and the value of it. And for the executive producers, it was really about building a credible relationship so that they knew that I would protect their babies mm -hmm. that was, we were never going to make choices that were inconsistent with the mission and the, the rhythm and the meaning behind the series, the ongoing series or the special. 
uh, and that the choices would be about education, they'd be about mission, they'd be about furthering the message, extending the reach, all of that stuff. So it also was relationship building. But yeah, but, what were the type of measures that you would take sort of internally and then externally to sort of achieve your marketing goals while at the same time uh, building credibility uh, with those executive uh, producers and their production teams? Well, in the early days when I first started, the only real major kind of marketing that was being done was was reviews, TV critics reviewing. Right. And that was an ongoing enterprise. There were about when I came on board, there were about I think I was employee number 12 in the department and I eventually grew it to. Well, into the 20s um, and then sometimes had hundreds of people working on special projects, um, some of the big ones that we might get into. Um, so in the early days, it was very much about, did you get a review in the New York, New York Times? That was the holy grail. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you got a review in the New York Times for something, that was great. But what many people, many of these producers didn't realize is that if you got the review in the New York Times on week X for Nova, yeah. then Frontline wasn't going to get it. Right. Yeah. There's only some, so, so, so many uh, laurels will be thrown around by one publication. Yes. There's no way that New York Times is going to is going to review five public television programs in the same week. So right. it was also a balancing act. But what we did is we began to introduce a lot of other things besides TV reviews. Um, we did a lot more PR around stories and issues. So, you know, like say for Emmett Till, uh, which was a, a, a an American experience, you know, we we did feature stories around the history of um, the story of Emmett Till and, and, and around racism and, and civil rights. And so the story wasn't just was this a great program, but it became a cultural story. Right. Um, right. With the program being the centerpiece of it or the reason to write it. And so we expand the PR. Um, we began to do uh, advertising, especially in coordination with PBS, when we could get what were called pop outs, where they would actually give us some money because we never had any money um, to promote. Uh, we were already doing on-air promo. We did a lot of partnerships, like for Mystery, we did partnerships with Borders Books. Mm -hmm. So all of the Mystery aficionados were seeing end caps and um, all sorts of promotion with the book and the series mm -hmm. or even the DVD. Right. A lot of creative ways to promote. And they were all different for each series or each program. So it sounds like what you're describing is sort of a slow evolution or expansion of marketing concerns into what we would now define as impact producing with the impact referring to the um, uh, the continuation or the turning the volume up on the impact of the program itself so that the impact extends beyond that 90 minute or two hour broadcast space of time and into, you know, the, 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 the realm of either education or, or the marketplace. Yeah. And I think that the, the definition of impact, um, particularly in the PBS ecosystem 
is a balancing act Mm -hmm. because by the purest definition of impact, the first five years that I was, I was there for about a decade, a little over a decade. And the first five years were really about growing marketing to be a really full-fledged marketing enterprise Mm -hmm. at the highest level. As you would see if you went to a high-end marketing, outside marketing agency, um, the full panoply of marketing ideas and techniques. And it really was the second five years that I was there where the impact producing really began. And in some ways, some of the work on one project really became a best practices within the PBS system for bringing that the next level. What was Um, that project? Uh, that project was called RX for Survival, mm, a global sure. health challenge. And yes. it, it's, it was a um, project that I co-helmed. Uh, it was a Nova project. So mm-hmm. it brought, I did a lot of Nova special projects. Actually, the precursor was evolution. I probably should talk about that one first. Sure thing. The, the first project that started to dip into impact producing was evolution. And that was um, it. It actually premiered 10 days after 9-11. Hmm. Um, and so it was in September, late September of 2001. And it was about evolution. And it was a multi-part series. The first two hours was a docudrama that we actually shot over in the UK about Darwin's life and his struggle with with science and religion and how he um he reconciled the two um, in his personal life and what was going on in e- England and the the ongoing, the same debates with, you know, Darwin and Wilberforce are the same debates that continue to happen in, in s- school districts across the country in 2023 and beyond. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we had um, more traditional documentary um, episodes, one hour episodes on different aspects of, of evolution. And we decided to really take on the issue as an organization, um, knowing that we were going to be deep in the maw of creationists and um, a new sort of anti-evolutionary group called uh, Intelligent Designers. Yes. And um, so we went all out as an organization. This was a Nova special. And it was co-produced with what was then called Clear Blue Sky Productions that was later named Vulcan Productions. So Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, was a partner on most of these early impact productions um, that I was working on. And um, we developed, we promoted the heck out of it. Um, We were pretty unapologetic about it. We had a lot of messaging we had to do. and decide kind of where we landed because it was extremely controversial to the point that we were talking to PBS on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the amount of press, the anti-press um, that was coming out, we developed teacher's guides um, and, and a whole host of educational materials that created untold controversy um, when they hit. Simply because simply because you're dealing with the topic of evolution, simply because at any point in time in the past hundred years, there are always 25 states 
in the United States yes. that are trying to block the teaching of evolution right. in the country. Right. It has never changed since the Scopes trial. It has mm-hmm. never changed. Many of them, sometimes it's a different state. I remember, you know, uh, I believe there's a Supreme Court case in, in Kansas at the time that we were launching. But at any given point in time, the anti-evolutionary movement is fighting the teaching of evolution in schools. And the intelligent design community created this sort of notion after it was struck down by the Supreme Court in 86 that we should teach it side by side. Right. And um, and also sort of pulled out a bunch of pseudo non-evolutionary scientists sort of saying, oh, it's disproved, writing a lot of books, going into the media. So when we did this, there were the Discovery Institute, which was the home base for this movement, took out New York Times ads against the series. They created a 500 page guide on what's wrong with the series. Somehow they got their hands on it, probably through press, because we would send out screeners in advance to the press so they could review it. They probably spent millions of dollars on advertising about what was wrong with the series, even before it had premiered. And it did premiere. The world was in shock at the time because of 9-11, so that it PBS gave it another airing later in April. And so it okay. actually had two runs in in that year. Did any um, of the PBS affiliates capitulate to pressure and choose not to air it? I believe that they did. I, I can't recall, you know, a handful probably did. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I believe that the way that they have their membership relationship is that they can opt out of a few things for sure. They choose to. So right. in all likelihood, they they did. It it really was quite controversial. I mean, it was the cover of Current Magazine, which is the PBS ra- newspaper, um, constantly right um, over that period of time, and it it got a lot of press for better or worse. So, how in your approach to impact producing did that sort of establish a template for you know the best way to disseminate information and teaching guides and and if necessary <laughs> rebuttal information you know uh, along certain topic areas i would say that that was not really fully impact producing okay but that was a precursor okay and in the pbs ecosystem what was important about that was pbs is always extremely careful Um, When it comes to controversial issues Mm -hmm. and it was a moment in time where everybody said, we're going to go for it. And so that was that. And the and because education and the teaching of it, the educational outreach was probably the and, and the promotion were the two strongest pieces. And indirectly, when you're creating directly or indirectly, when you're creating teaching tools on how to teach evolution in the classroom, you're essentially saying teach evolution in the classroom. Now, we weren't taking a stand because evolution was part of the common core. Impact producing, by my definition, can move into the world of advocacy. And Mm -hmm. that's where it becomes very thorny for Mm -hmm. PBS. So, So some of the things that I've done since I've left PBS, I could never have done at PBS. In the leaving of WGBH, leaving of PBS, and you go on to create uh, your your own uh, uh, business, your own agency called Azure Media, 
And you're focusing almost exclusively on impact producing now. Is that correct? Yes, by the broadest definition. The project that I did do at PBS that really was pure impact producing was on global health. And And this is RX for survival. Yeah. Is that something you'd like to hear a little more about? Absolutely. Sure. Okay. This was the same group of people. It was Nova and it was Vulcan Productions. And this was the early aughts. And there was really a feeling like that global health um, was an important subject and one that no one really knew about. And Paula Absol, who was the executive producer of Nova at the time, said to me, do you know what an impact campaign is? And I said, yes, indeed, I do. And she said, well, I know the folks at the Gates Foundation who were behind this um, are talking about it. Can we figure out what that might be. And so I came on board to to co um, lead this, the non-production part of this project mm-hmm. um, and create, you know, everything from an impact campaign, what the website would look like, what the marketing materials, everything holistically had to come together into a single enterprise. And we developed a social impact campaign for this multi-part series that aired in 2003. And it had a ton of moving parts, but what made it different from the Evolution Project is that we were engaging multiple constituencies, including government officials, engaging them directly um, to be aware of the project, to create impact around global health. So I'll give you some examples. The series happened at a time where nobody knew what global health was. When you talk to any reporters about health, they would talk about health insurance. No American reporters, there are no beat reporters on global health at the time, maybe one or two. So health was about domestic health, and it was largely always about the massive the health insurance or the lack of health insurance or those kinds of issues. And Americans were very unaware of the fact that health is global. Mm-hmm. You know, right now we're on the heels of a pandemic. It's up front and center to everybody how global health is. Right. But in 2002, no, people didn't really think about it. And so we covered everything from TB and polio, which was almost eradicated, but not quite. A lot of the big ticket global health issues. And one of the big areas, um, you know, around global health is how many children are dying in the developing world from a lack of basic resources that we take for granted here in the U.S. And so in evaluating the entire series, the first thing I needed to do was focus. We couldn't cover all of global health. So we decided to create the impact campaign campaign around child survival. Mm-hmm. And we partnered with UNICEF Care and Save the Children, Rotary International, the Girl Scouts of America, um, the Global Health um, Institute, Global Health Council, rather, um, Gavi, which is um, a major global health enterprise. And we um, decided to to create a campaign. Think Mm -hmm. about it like a campaign, but it's not politics. It's an issue. Yeah. 
And we, the experts told us that if five key interventions um, got to children before the age of five, it would dramatically increase their chances of survival. So you're talking about bed nets, bed nets for b- yeah. malaria, sure. antibiotics, vaccines, um, de- um, uh, a lot of kids die from um, just from dehydration. So sure. oral rehydration therapy, just salt diarrhea, and, diarrhea, little salt yeah. and little salt and sugar packets. Yep. And um, so our campaign was to create awareness around these needs and to to work with care and save the children that have programs already in country like Sierra Leone and um, a, a lot of these kinds of places and create awareness around um, this. We created a fund where people could donate money. So that was very, very controversial in the PBS system. Very controversial because the money is supposed to go to PBS and to development. Right, right. Not to some other, you know, we've never raised money. We did. So what we ended up doing was a multi-part project. Um, We engaged in no order of importance, the religious community. We had ecumenical pastors from all around um, the the world, actually, as well as, um, you know, mostly in the U.S., creating sermons around moral responsibility. We yeah, had really a- thinking uh, you're really thinking like a marketer. In, in this sense and, you know, strip away any pejoratives that any, yeah. any people in the PBS world may think about as marketing. But if you if you boil it down, Rx for Survival had tangible sort of communication goals. Yes. And, and as a marketer, you were taking the all of the tools of the time that were at your disposal to reach as broad an audience as possible. That's right. That's that's right. We had um, 70 programs on college campuses Mm -hmm. around this. Mm -hmm. Um, We partnered with the American Academy of Pediatrics, who put up forty five thousand posters in pediatric offices around the U.S. about this issue, sort of saying the care of you know, children in the developing world is not that different than the care of the child that you're sitting here in this pediatric office waiting for your appointment right now. And of course, it sent them to the Rx for child survival mm-hmm. areas, materials or to care um, and save the children. We worked with um, Johns Hopkins, which um, university, which created the first undergraduate course. Uh, on global health, which was made free of charge to all colleges and universities around the world. So for the for a long term effect to start to educate folk, folks, um, we I mean, we had, you know, m- multiple programs um, operating at the same time, all in the effort not only for people to watch the series, but to understand the importance of it. And so, oh, and then we work with legislators. So we work with, there was a global health caucus. We did multiple events down on Capitol Hill. We did screenings um, with uh, Congress people were fighting to get 
um, to the podium to say, I'm part of this one. I'm part of this one. We sent the screeners out to Congress people in advance before the event. And to fast forward kind of what were the results, um, the results didn't really show up completely for three years. If you really want to talk about impact. And, uh, and what, yeah. What, what's yeah, I, I'm curious what sort of measurable results you were you were looking for. Well, we had short term, medium term and long term. So the okay. short term um, were around awareness mm-hmm. of the issue of global health. So we did benchmark research before the project. Um, and we saw that Americans and then we, of course, went 18 months afterwards that Americans awareness of global health. Just the issue and the, the 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 issues behind it had increased by almost, I think it was twenty five percent, and their mm-hmm. predisposition to get involved and consider it an important issue like the environment or some of the other issues that some of these folks cared about to say, oh wow, this is something I should be involved in. That their desire to get involved boosted way up. Um, in addition, one of our short term goals was to get the press to start writing about global health, not about our series, about global health. They did write about the series, but secondarily, we wanted them to write about global health. We created a newsroom guide uh, working with the World Health Organization, kind of like an AP or Chicago style guide that you see in a newsroom to help them understand how to um, evaluate the statistics, the the World Health Organization stats or whoever was putting them forth and how to write about it, because none of these, it had to either be medical reporters or foreign reporters were going to have to write about it. And um, we saw in about a year, a 33% increase in stories around uh, around global health in North America, which is unbelievable. Um, we also contributed to Bill and Melinda Gates being on the cover of Time Magazine. In that same period of time. So that now, was in part due to your efforts. We don't know. <laughs> I mean, honestly, who, who could say sure. it, we, we helped? Yeah. Uh, could they have been on the cover on their of their own accord without this? Probably, maybe. But certainly we were part of the momentum. Um, the long term goals um, were. Uh, oh, some other short-term goals that were achieved, and I don't have the statistics, but I, I don't know which one was whether it was save save the children, uh, save the children and care. Both had a big uptick in their donations. One of them had a hundred and seventy percent increase in donations. Wow! Wow! To their child survival um, funds during this period of time. The other one had a ninety percent. Hmm. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember which which one. Um, the long term um, goal that was met in 2008, it was not set as a, as a concrete goal, but it was an indirect goal. It's the reason we went and made Capitol Hill aware of all of this is that there was an increase in the maternal health budget item, which is where TB, malaria, AIDS Funding for the developing world lives in that bucket. Um, It tripled in 2008 and we aired in 2005. Can we claim that? No, that's the that's the fuzziness of impact producing. But if you see how concrete 
these things are in changing uh, awareness, behavior, goals. There are more stories were being written about global health, more students were learning about global health. The Girl Scouts created a global health patch for young people. So we were um, working to make younger generations aware for the long term. We can't measure that. We can't measure if any of those girls went into global health or who took the, the undergraduate course. But we know for sure that we increase people's awareness, their predisposition to get involved, money going to care and save the children, um, and ultimately funding um, to that line item to the developing world. So it's interesting as you as you sort of recount this almost as like a case study uh, yep. for uh, impact producing, at least at the time, you know, simultaneous to your efforts was the um, uh, just the huge build out of of digital platforms and and the Internet, you know, as a means of um sharing information and some of the impact that you that you describe reminds me of some of the more idealistic talk that was taking place around 2000, 2005, et cetera, uh, you know, about what the Internet in terms of being a purveyor of information is going to make possible. And in a best case scenario, what you just described certainly, you know, fits the bill. But talk to me a little bit about how the emergence of various digital platforms and digital outreach efforts has influenced uh, and made easier or even perhaps more difficult the role of an impact producer? Well, I think, you know, a lot of the tools that we'll call kind of that RX for, for survival, kind of a ground zero example, the tools were very old school, many of them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, going directly to preachers and yes, we had a website um, and, and people could learn more about care and save the children and, and UNICEF through the website, but you were still having your audience communicate with organizations and institutions in sort of a more it's more more from like person to organization and with mm -hmm. with the um advent of social media kind of everybody has an equal voice sure. and information is moving much faster i mean there's much more clutter so on the on the down, the downside is is that you know there's just so much fragmentation of message and there's so much input that people are getting every day that it's much harder to reach people with a thoughtful message. Sure. So that's kind of the downside in today's world that people are overloaded. And in this democratization of information, the, the often unsaid downside is that just because there is more information doesn't mean that there's not better information, meaning more accurate information. I was, you know, as as you're recounting this, I was thinking about, well, can you imagine if this evolution series, um, you know, were to air in a current environment, uh, your your pushback, your blowback, your disinformation and misinformation that you would have been fighting against would have been almost insurmountable. It's true. I mean, at the time that I was working on evolution, I, I don't know if you remember that um, a lot of news organizations were getting um, anthrax 
powder. Sure, packages. absolutely. And post 9-11, yes. I got an envelope with white powder. Wow. In the middle of the evolution thing. Now, it was flour or something. It was nothing nefarious. Yeah, but the fact was that somebody considered you a target. I was a target. And that was 2001. So I would tell you that if I were doing this campaign right now, I think about the people who are working, um, you know, the attorneys general that are going to be working in the next the next upcoming presidential election who are targets for simply doing their job and upholding the tenets of the Constitution. Attorneys general they, and secretaries of secretaries, state. Yeah. And so, yeah. Secretaries of state. That's actually what I meant. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be okay to be honest with you. If I were doing that project right now, I don't know that I would be okay. I mean, I just can't even imagine. I'm not doing a project. I did a project recently, you know, not that recently, but a few years ago on vaccines mm -hmm. before the pandemic. The ire was unbelievable, and it was a very, very sensitively handled documentary. It was very much about listening to people's concerns as opposed to throwing the science at people and saying, you shall believe. It was exquisitely handled. And yet the the diatribe on, on Twitter and social media was pretty rough. I mean, one of the individuals who was who was a subject in the film got death threats. Wow. That's uh, a, yeah. And, and comparatively speaking, yeah. that was a more innocent and, and it time. Was, it was it was someone who's it was someone whose daughter is autistic. And um, she it was it was really, I believe, folks. She was talking about that she does not believe that there is a connection between vaccines and, and autism. She happens to also work in um, in research in, in autism. And so that little subset of folks within the anti-vax community were very, very, very targeted against her and her autistic daughter. Um, so, as so, your work as an impact producer uh, has 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 evolved through the years, how do you find projects? How do projects find you? What's sort of the litmus test that a project kind of has to pass in order for you to say, yes, th th this is something that I I, I want to apply my efforts toward? Well, not every project I work on has an impact campaign. Mm -hmm. Let me start by saying that not every documentary film needs one. Yep. Or should have one. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I am producing, executive producing, producing a various set of descriptions, marketing around a film. I think there are a finite number of people who really do impact producing around documentary film very well in this country. And we all know each other. And what do, you, what, what do you think? What, what do you think defines the qualities of having it done very well? It's really about using the label, misusing the label rather than the quality of the work. It, it's not that there are people out there doing poor impact campaigns. It's that there are people that are doing what they claim to be impact campaigns that are really just really good marketing. That That's that's a really interesting distinction. because I mean, a real impact campaign yeah. has measurable goals and objectives. Sure. And at the end. 
you actually find out whether you achieved it or not. And you admit it. The objectives of these campaigns where your, you know, your goals are to inform and to, you know, to motivate in some fashion are far more difficult to measure than, say, if you're. Uh, if it was an extension of a marketing campaign and you could just look and say, well, did we sell more of what we were trying to sell? You really need metrics. I mean, at the end of the day for like RX for survival, we had metrics Mm -hmm. and, you know, with a place like the Gates Foundation, there are going to be some metrics. Trust me. Yes. And so we said we wanted to increase the coverage of global health by journalists by a certain percentage, it was less than the 33%. But mm-hmm. I don't remember the goal, but we achieved like a 30, a 30, 32% increase. And it was much higher than our goal. Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, we wanted to raise money. That was another metric because we knew if money went to getting these five interventions to children, we did not translate that into lives saved. That was inappropriate. At least for us, if Care or Save the Children wants to say that $12 equals one life, they can do that. We didn't do that. That that was beyond what we felt as documentary film producers we could do. But we can certainly go so far as to say that we can raise awareness and raise money. And the experts in global health can say these interventions They have their metrics that say how these interventions save lives. Indirectly, you can say you save lives. Mm -hmm. So doing creative outreach, it's really like outreach. Outreach has been out there for a long time. Yes. And outreach is very valuable, but outreach is not the same as impact. Outreach is about creating awareness and access to ideas and information. Impact is moving the needle. You're changing behavior. You're changing culture. You're changing institutions. It's it's based on the theory of change, which is an old economic and sociological principle that you have to to make change. You have to do things, uh, a process of steps. So in the case of Azure Media, the way we think about it is you have a high impact media event. That creates awareness. Right. Um, It's like a ripple effect. A a drop of water goes in into the water. The first ripple is awareness. The next ripple is understanding. The next ripple is engagement. And the final is action. How do you get people to act? How do you get people to get involved? And so nowadays that can be signing a petition or a text or showing up at an event or um, protesting or writing a legislator or electing somebody different. Mm -hmm. There are any number of things that but you're trying to get your audiences to do something that will make a difference. And part of creating an impact campaign is reverse engineering. What are those calls to action that you want them to do? So you said a little while back that, you know, not every documentary needs an impact campaign. Talk to me about the relationship in the instances where you're going to be heading up the impact campaign. Uh, 
when does the relationship with the documentary filmmaker establish itself? Is this at the inception of the project and they're already thinking about an impact campaign? Or do you become aware of an existing documentary and say to the production team, have you guys thought about accompanying an impact campaign? Well, impact, your best friend with impact is time more than money. So more about that. You can have all the money in the world. And if you only have six months, you can't create impact. Yes. Okay. So for instance, for RX for Survival, that was four years in the making. Just forging the relationships with UNICEF and all of those partners was like, it took a year. Wow. To figure out what countries to go to. So that was a big, big, big project. But even for a smaller project, the short answer is from the get-go, Michael. If if you are a producer and you think that there is a way to inspire or even create moral outrage around your topic of your film, then you should, from the very beginning, be thinking about what that looks like and finding somebody to help you. Because you should be, while you're in production, you should be forging the partnerships. You should be speaking. Speaking, you should be setting up an advisory board. You need an advisory board of experts. You can't just say, this is what we think will make a difference. You need the experts in that area to mm-hmm. say, and they don't all agree with each other. So you've got to, you've got to work with them and figure out, you know, NGOs aren't, don't always play in a sandbox well together. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to figure out who are your partners and what are the things that you want people to do. That takes a really long time. So if you are, you know, if you've all, if you've got a year left, then you probably could do some very strong outreach and maybe one or two sp- smaller specific things around impact. If you want a full on impact campaign, you should be thinking about it while you're raising money for the project. That's a crucially important raise, point. It also will help you raise money for the project, by the way. Being because able to say that this is there's going to be an accompanying impact campaign because the because yeah. the other funders are going to be aware that the impact of their funding is actually going to go further than the film itself. Yes. Media impressions are not enough. If you're going to Foundation X or Company Y, you know, if it's media impressions that they could just do a media buy. Sure. So if they're going to buy into if they're going to, you know, whichever foundations are looking for impact, the Ford Foundation has been talking about impact for years. They have been yeah. focusing a lot of their documentary funds on impact campaigns yeah. around equity um, impact campaigns. Most foundations care about impact. They are driven by impact. In fact, foundations are the engine behind impact campaigns. For It's interesting to go back in the realm of marketing speak that. Sometimes it feels like the the film itself is almost a like a loss leader in in, in the terms <laughs> of servicing ser- servicing the impact campaign and the the discussion the those that sort of uh, cultivation of hearts and minds that you were just speaking of um, you know becomes a byproduct that that supersedes the film or the program itself. Um, I'm sure that there are a lot of writers and directors who probably would say that's not the way I think about it. I'm sure they don't. (laughs) But back to sort of my early days at WGBH, I spend 
uh, quite a bit of time talking to filmmakers and educating them on what you're talking about, the value of the integration of it. it. It raises money. It's, you know, if you can go and create a, a narrative at, you know, a year later after something to, you know, target or to um, a foundation around your issue and say, not only was it seen here and at all these festivals or was on, you know, whatever, PBS or not Geo or wherever, it also, you know, did this and it did this and it did this. Um, that That is when when they are thinking about what either their mission is as a foundation or how to impress their boss in a corporation, um, they're not buying into a documentary as a media buy. They're buying into a documentary for an image campaign. This is about improving their their image. And so they want to be in the space of a documentary film because they want to be making a difference. They wouldn't they wouldn't even conceive of getting involved if they weren't in a different mindset. So if you add, add an impact campaign to that mindset, you're doing something pretty cool. So tell me a little bit about some of the more recent projects that you've been involved in. You're, I mean, you're, you're, you're such a renaissance woman between the impact producing, the producing of programs and documentaries, and then the executive producing. And, you know, a lot of listeners might not be aware of the distinction on those roles, amongst those roles, but they do exist. But let's st- stay in the realm of impact producing for a bit and tell me about uh, some of the more recent and maybe some of the more or uh, exciting to your mind projects that you've been part of? Uh, You know, the beautiful thing about being out on your own and running your own business is that you get to, on a good day, cherry pick what you work on. Um, And so I have been extremely lucky. I think the fact that I have spent the last, you know, those 10 years at um, WGBH, I, I really operate in that mission driven media realm quite a bit. And most of what I do is word of mouth. I mean, quite frankly, you just, you hear about people and they say, you know, she might be a good fit or, um, so I have worked on a variety of projects from one, a few years ago on vaccines and the importance of vaccines and not only debunking the myths about the connection between vaccines and autism, um, but also some of the latest science, which is uh, about autism being genetic and delving very deep into parents' concerns about vaccines rather than you know shunting those concerns away. Um, it was a project called Vaccines Calling the Shots um, from an Australian filmmaker. It actually aired in Australia first, and it was retrofitted for American audiences, again, as ANOVA. Um, I do a lot of work in the science and health space. Mm-hmm. Um, that is I, not on purpose, but kind of, I guess, on purpose, my sweet spot. Um, so, you know, that's one topic. And um, it was very controversial. So a big part of, you know, that project was managing what was going on with social media, which was um, a mess sometimes. I mean, it was out of control. Um, some of the the things going on in social media and countless phone calls about, do we respond or do we leave it be? Right. You know, um, because in the world of social media, things are all over the place. But 
um, a, a project on um, on the uh, war in Afghanistan um, called The List. And this was about how so many contractors that had helped the U.S. in Afghanistan, same story with Iraq now, too, were left behind and their lives are in jeopardy. And, and it's a great little film um, by Beth Murphy about a guy who was a contractor who wanted to get some of his friends out. And he tried, you know, they were going to Turkey and all sorts of places to to evade being murdered. And that list of his handful of friends has turned into a massive list and engaging immigration lawyers across the country to help get some of these folks out. So that's a concrete example. And the exact same thing that happened in Afghanistan happened in Iraq. I'm working on a project right now that hasn't aired about, um, it's called Food Uprising. And it's, it's about the relationship between food and health and how what we're seeing, even especially among young people, is this huge rise of type two diabetes and of heart disease because of food deserts. And so we've gone across the country looking at solutions from supermarkets to um, cooking classes and all sorts of concrete interventions that are writing of the agriculture bill would be a big one. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. We're looking at all these concrete interventions that we think could be scalable Right. Across the country to really raise awareness amongst the medical community, among educational community and mostly just among everyday people. But there are real concrete institutional barriers to why people are not eating the best they could eat. And some of them are they don't have access. Some are cultural. So that's an exciting one that I'm working on right now that I've been working on that on and off for a year and a half. And we're still in the development. Um, phases of that one. And so I will be working both as a producer and as the impact person. So I I can do straight producing work and impact work. Um, I worked on a project on um, big data at one point. I've even been noodling something on AI just because just because um, <laughs> because yeah. it's it's about to become mandatory in about 15 yes. minutes. <laughs> anyway, so um I work on a, a lot of different things, but I think for me, the right project is the right team yep. and the right subject. And I will be honest and say, there is nothing wrong with just doing great outreach on a film. And I will stay involved and and work and guide on the outreach or on, on the social and bring the right people together. Not everything has to be an impact campaign, um, but an impact campaign can really make a huge difference. You just need a pretty long runway for an impact campaign. And in the realm of an executive producer, something that you just recently completed was a a series, a three-part documentary series called Muraling Austin. Tell us about that series and how you came to be involved in it. Well, such a fun subject for starters, because Austin is such an exciting and vibrant and creative and artsy city. Um, And I have been working for about a year with a a new production company called Nelda Studios out of Austin. And I came on board to do strategic planning 
largely. I do a lot of strategic planning and have launched a number of production companies. How do you define um, strategic planning for a production uh, company? In this case, I was taking a look at what Nelda Studios was already doing and evaluating kind of who they are and who they might be and took a look at the company and just sort of said, you really are operating in three realms. They were doing a lot of everything and they all kind of made sense for who they wanted to be. But we re- I renamed them. They were Nelda.com, renamed them to Nelda Studios and created kind of buckets of enterprise. So one was around education. So they're, they were already doing some um, work with UT around the School of Design and Creative Technologies and creating something called a Buck, the Buckman Center, which is kind of an innovative lab for creative thinking at the intersection of art and technology. And they were doing a lot of sort of events and different things. Um, sort of like, let's put that kind of in the community outreach bucket. And mm-hmm. then they were looking at some things that were self-published and sort of helped restructure it as an actual production company. And that's where Muraling Austin came about, where I helped identify where we might go and um, help make it happen. So, but I have done mergers um, between organizations with the Howard um, Hughes uh, Medical Institute. I launched Tangle Bank Studios with them, um, which is now a major um, studio that creates science and nature films. So I wear even more hats than we've talked about. Most but, definitely. And Mural, back Nelda. to Mural in Austin just for a minute. Um, I know that on July 2nd, uh, that Muraling Austin will be available on PBS's World Channel. And but you can also watch the full series on the uh, program website. Is that correct? Well, yes. And on PBS.org. So it's a three it's a three part series, three, three thirty minutes. And it is um, it is airing on the World Channel, which is available in about 80 percent of the country on three consecutive Sundays, July 2nd, July 9th and July 16th at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So converted if you're in a different time zone. It's also available streaming all the time at PBS.org. So just go to PBS.org and in the search um, bar, just uh, enters Muraling Austin and it, it will pop up and you can stream it anytime you like. So given um, the array of roles that you play and the services that you provide and the the uh, programs and projects that you're involved with, how do you look at your calendar, say, 90 days out and figure out where your efforts are going to be you know, most fully devoted? Pretty organic. I, I would love to say that I have a plan, but <laughs> the truth is. That when I left WGBH, my business plan was buying a MacBook Pro. <laughs> Small goals. <laughs> and I bought a new MacBook Pro and I was off and running. I also brought go, a bunch it's of, all you need. <laughs> yeah, I, I brought a bunch of existing WGBH projects with me, yeah. an, um, a Nova project and um, something called Latin Music USA. But it's kind of like. I kind of imagine it like being an artist where, you know, you have a bunch of paintings, one you're starting and another one that you think is done, but you keep going back to it. So I have a variety of projects that are in different stages. That's a great Um, way to think of it. 
And um, so some are pretty blank canvases right now. And some, somebody needs to yell at me and say, it's done. (laughs) It's good enough. It's done. You know, so I, um, and I like the different stages. Um, But for instance, for muraling Austin, I was, we were all heads down. I should mention that um, my creative partner, Natasha Davison, who's the head of production at, at, at Nelda Studios had already shot a lot of the the muralists when I got there. And it was just sitting in the can. It wasn't done or anything. And I think they were not sure where, whether they're going to do anything with it. And I evaluated a lot of the stuff that they had done, some of which was much more finely articulated with hosts and everything um, that we were looking at. But when I saw the, the, the mural stuff, something happened. And I just had an aha moment. Right. Um, I had been to Austin a few times. I understood the city. And so I said to um, Natasha, I said, and and to the um, executives there, I said, I think we should go to PBS for this. And I think instead of, you know, starting national, let's go to Austin PBS. Mm-hmm. And see if they want to play in the sandbox with us. And I wrote an email. Didn't know anybody. I'm known for that. I call and write, and every once in a while, people call and write back. <laughs> there you go. I like that methodology. And Sarah Robertson, who is the head of production there, emailed me right back and said, let's talk. And um, it turned into, um, in, in December 1st of 2022, we're sitting in a meeting um, with the um, president, the brand new president of Austin PBS, um, Luis Patino, and he said at the end of the meeting, can you do an eight part series on this? And I said, no, we can do a four part series. <laughs> and then he said, can you have it ready by South by Southwest? This was December 1st. Of 2022? And, yes. <laughs> so when Natasha and I sat down, I said, it's three, not four. And, you know, we created the, the the three out of what we had and we had to go out and shoot more and we did the entire some of the shooting and the entire post-production delivered by i don't know what it was like february 9th wow yeah well, it, it just, was it, so i was so to your point yeah i wasn't working on anything else for about two and a half months in order to pull this off right. and you know it so it actually premiered at austin pbs and then it got picked up by the world channel. Well, it certainly sounds as if you have found a way to hit the bullseye in terms of doing work that you find engaging and necessary and valuable and, you know, putting to use your vast array of skills of both, you know, it's almost church and state, right? The production side and the marketing side. And uh, this has been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed it. Well, me too. You know, I think I'd like to answer your very first question as my final response, because when you said when you go to like a cookout, you know, how do you describe yourself? Um, Well, I usually don't talk about work at cookouts if I can avoid it. But (laughs) if it were, you know, kind of they were asking me the question of what I do. I, I often say I work at the nexus of three things, storytelling, marketing and advocacy. So those three things come together and that's the cauldron, the pot 
And I'm always stirring the pot. And those three ingredients are always there. There may be more storytelling when I'm executive producing, and there may be more advocacy and a hardcore impact campaign. But that's that's how I see what I do. Well, it's been great talking to you about all three of those paths and how they all add up to furthering your desire to be involved in mission-driven projects. Ann Zeiser, thank you for your time. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been a delight. 